You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. If we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. Grateful to have you with us uh, for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And um, yeah, grateful to be celebrating our risen Lord together with you this morning. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. How do those words from 1 Corinthians 15 come from the pen of a man who threatened, jailed, and approved the murder of the first followers of Jesus? How does one who is so zealous to see the church completely stamped out end up using his life to fan that church into flame throughout the Mediterranean world. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. In Acts chapter nine, we learn the story of this appearance. We're gonna be in Acts chapter nine this morning. If you're using those black hardcover Bibles, page 917 is where that text begins. And what a great day for us to consider these words in the book of Acts. Today, as Jess mentioned earlier, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We are celebrating that Jesus is the risen one. So let me be another face to welcome you to our Easter celebration here at Liberty. Uh, We're glad to have you with us. And that's true whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, we're, we're not put off by your questions that you have this morning, your doubts, not even your hostility, if you have some hostility toward Jesus or toward Christians or toward the church. Because for us to be put off by that would be inconsistent with the faith we proclaim. See, in the early days of our historic faith, one of the most hostile opponents of Jesus became one of his most devoted followers, became one of his most joyful servants, became one of his most effective missionaries. And we invite you to consider his story this morning. Not only his, though. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is only one of four people who encounter Jesus. In each case, Jesus says to them, rise. And it means something a little bit different to each of them. We're going to look at that this morning. But in Acts chapter 9, on this Resurrection Sunday, we see what happens when the, re- when the risen one says rise to his people. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is uh, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And is seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were still seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was was alive, while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. 
And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for us this morning. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. And so we ask now that you would send your spirit to give us deeper insight and encouragement and faith and hope through the proclamation of the good news of the risen Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So four times in this text, the risen one, Jesus Christ, tells someone to rise. Twice he does that directly with Saul and Ananias. And then twice, indirectly through the apostle Peter, he does that with Aeneas and Tabitha. And not that this in any way makes a complete list, but in telling each of these four people to rise, we see something of the difference that the resurrection of Jesus makes. And so we'll look this morning at each of those four people and what it means when Jesus says, rise to them. With Saul, it is rise to new life. With Ananias, rise to forgettable faithfulness. With Aeneas, rise to restoration. And with Tabitha, rise from death. So first, Saul and rise to new life. As he is the the focal point of most of chapter nine and really the rest of the book of Acts, we'll spend most of our time on Saul this morning. If you've been with us in this series back at the end of chapter seven, Luke kind of sneaks in an introduction to Saul. The witnesses who stoned Stephen to death lay their garments at Saul's feet. And Saul is there, it says, Luke says, approving of Stephen's execution. Then he spearheads the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. But not content to simply purge Jerusalem, he then secures extradition orders from the high priest to go to other places and bring Christians who have fled back to face trial, to face imprisonment in in Jerusalem. And so here in Acts 9, he sets out on this 135-mile, nearly week-long journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. Mind you, Saul is a, a faithful Jewish man. He's a Pharisee. So he believed in a resurrection, just not the resurrection of an individual person in the middle of history. Pharisees believed that there would be one day a resurrection on the last day, more specifically, and that that would happen as part of God's entire renewed created order. So the resurrection of Jesus, one man, not to mention a man who died hanging on a tree, which the book of Deuteronomy would prove means he was cursed by God, the resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ, was unthinkable until it became undeniable. Until the truth, capital T, literally knocked him to the ground. Until the light of the world shone so brightly, it literally blinded him and he could no longer see the world any other way. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? 
See, Jesus isn't just alive. He's so present, he's so active with his followers, he's so united with them, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. Jesus has big plans for Saul. Saul is, as Jesus will say in just a moment, a chosen instrument. But in God's kingdom, humility comes before exaltation. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And so on the Damascus road, as he nears the city, Jesus brings Saul low to the ground. He stops this proud, self-righteous, zealous, but misguided man right in his tracks. But then, verse 6, the risen one says, rise. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. See, Jesus has prepared a new life for Saul, a completely transformed life. After three days, Saul will regain his sight. Scales will fall off as the Holy Spirit opens new eyes. He will rise and be baptized, experiencing his own washing, his own cleansing, his own death to sin and rebirth to new life in Christ. Some years later, he will go on to write in Philippians chapter 3 that Jesus took hold of him. As he was on the way to arrest followers of Jesus, Jesus arrested him. And it completely flips the script of his life. By verse 20, here in Acts 9, he does reach those synagogues in Damascus, but he reaches them with a completely different message, the complete opposite of what he sent out to do and say. And then by verse 30, this man who set out to persecute the church is himself fleeing persecution. This morning, though, let's clear up two misconceptions about Saul and about this moment of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. For one, new life is not an easy life or a comfortable life. Jesus' new life, when he calls his people to rise, it is to rise to a life of suffering, and sacrifice. He says in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the call of Jesus is both rise and live and rise and suffer. And the rest of Saul's life, some of you know his story well, bears this out. The easy road for Saul was the road to Damascus, the road he was on, the road from Damascus and the rest of his life is beautiful and absolutely worthwhile. He will go on to write that everything that happened before this moment is rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Jesus. But new life in Jesus is not a life of health. It's not a life of wealth or prosperity. It's a life of suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. And a second misconception. Though this moment of his conversion, as we read, is abrupt and dramatic. God has been at work in and around Saul for a while. The process of his conversion is actually much longer than we often think. As Saul will recount, Jesus actually said something else to him in this moment. Luke doesn't record it here in Acts chapter 9, but he does in Acts 26 when Saul is retelling his story. Acts 26, 14, Jesus says, Saul is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Goads were, were pointed sticks 
used to prod livestock along, to get livestock to go where you wanted them to go. And so Jesus is saying here, in essence, Saul, I've been prodding for a while. I've been moving you toward the truth. I've been moving you toward me. And you've been resisting that. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep resisting me. Are you finally ready to stop kicking against me? Men and women, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an incredibly inconvenient truth. And that's true in one of two ways. If you believe in the resurrection, if you come to put your faith in the historical objective fact of the resurrection, you're called into a new life of suffering, of taking up your cross and following Jesus. But if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will live the rest of your life in denial. You will live the rest of your life against the grain of how God has worked in the world. Not simply wrestling with doubt, as all of us do, but suppressing the truth and living against it. So this Easter, let the story of Saul's conversions lay the options out before us all. And we might say it this way, choose your inconvenience. Choose your inconvenience. There's the inconvenience of belief, a life of costly sacrifice and service, or there's the inconvenience of unbelief, a life of kicking against the goads, of trying to ignore, trying to outrun the reality of a crucified and risen Jesus. How had Jesus been prodding Saul? Perhaps Stephen's speech kept lingering in his mind, hearing how all of Israel's history had been building to Jesus, had been pointing to him. Certainly Stephen's final words, his final prayer, Lord, do not count this sin against them, would have been burned into Saul's memory. And Stephen's prayers are answered here in this dramatic moment on the road to Damascus. Let's just remember that the road to Saul's conversion began much earlier, much before this moment. We should value and celebrate the stories of dramatic conversion. And some of you have stories like this. When God's beauty and glory show up and stop you in your tracks and do, do a 180, make you do a 180 in your life. Let's just always recognize the same beauty and glory in all that led up to dramatic moments like that. And that means, Christian, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Stephen never saw Saul's conversion, nor did, to be sure, many obscure and unknown men and women whom Saul persecuted and imprisoned before this moment. But their faithfulness, their lives, their words were all part of the foundational work building to the Damascus road, prodding Saul, preparing Saul for the hour that the risen one would knock him to the ground and then call him to rise. And speaking of obscure but incredibly important people in the history of the church, let's look next at Ananias. Ananias. Jesus calls Saul to rise to new life. But second, Jesus calls Ananias to rise to forgettable faithfulness. Forgettable faithfulness. If there's a character in Acts chapter 9 that we are likely to forget, it's Ananias. It's Ananias. Maybe that's because just a few chapters back, Acts chapter 5, a different guy named Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and fell down dead at the apostles' feet. It's kind of like if you were another guy named Adolf in the middle of the 20th century. 
like one guy kind of ruined it for everybody else. That name is forever tainted and the association of it's just kind of gone bad. But this Ananias, as a disciple in Damascus, he hears from Jesus in a vision. And like God's willing servants have done for generations, Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and Isaiah, he replies, here I am, Lord. Jesus says then, rise, rise. Go to Straight Street, which is a main east to west thoroughfare in Damascus. It's actually still in use today. And he says, go to Judas's house. Speaking of names which have bad associations in the early church, go to Judas's house. Look for Saul. I've told him you're coming. Understandably, Ananias then hesitates. Are you sure, Jesus? I've heard about this guy. He's your enemy. He's my enemy. He came here to arrest people like me. Jesus replies, go. Yes, I'm sure. I've got plans for Saul. But in order for Saul to fulfill God's calling on his life, Ananias must first fulfill God's calling on his own. See, we could think about it this way. There is more than one chosen instrument of God in Acts chapter 9. God has more than one chosen instrument. One is not nearly as remembered, not nearly as noteworthy, but Ananias' response and his faithfulness to Jesus here in this text is no less significant. His courage to do what Jesus tells him is the human means by which Saul receives his new life in Christ. And think about what Jesus is calling Ananias into, what Ananias is invited into in this moment. He is the first Christian to look Saul in the eyes and call him brother. Brother Saul. And if that is not a testament to the welcome of the gospel, then I don't know what is. A man who three days ago came to imprison Ananias is now welcomed as family, as sharing a family identity with him. Ananias then lays his hands on Saul who receives the Holy Spirit and regains his sight. Ananias is then almost certainly the one who baptizes Saul there in Damascus. One author referred to Ananias as a forgotten hero of the Christian church. Now, some of that forgetting is on us and particularly our branch of Christianity as Protestants. Ananias is actually recognized as a saint in both the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. But in scripture, after this account, after Acts chapter 9, we don't hear about Ananias again. Saul, on the other hand, or Paul as he is more often known, and some of you know this, dominates the rest of the narrative of the book of Acts and actually writes a substantial portion of the New Testament. All of which to say, some of Jesus' chosen instruments become household names. Countless more fade into obscurity. Ananias' life is one of forgettable faithfulness. And lives like his have always been and remain today God's primary means of continuing the advance of the gospel in the world. See, when we learn that Jesus calls us as his followers to rise, to experience new life in him, we often translate that into recognition, into becoming known for changing the world, for example. But when the risen one says rise, what he far more often means is that we are to, as Count Zinzendorf once put it, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. 
And this wasn't a a new concept when Jesus said it to Ananias here in Acts 9. In Luke 17, Jesus told his disciples, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done what was our duty. When Jesus says, rise to you, some of that really is about you. He really loves you. He really cares for you. You are not some kind of cog in a cosmic machine. But your calling to rise is not only about you. It is God appointing you as a chosen instrument. It's appointing you as his workmanship created in him for good works, which God has prepared in advance so that you, for his sake and for the sake of others, might walk in them. In writing about the spiritual discipline of service, an author named Don Whitney posed these questions which merit our own reflection. He writes, Can you work to make others look good without envy filling your heart? Can you minister to the needs of those whom God exalts and whom men honor when you yourself seem neglected? Can you pray for the ministry of others to prosper when it would cast yours in the shadows? Ananias can. That's what he does in Acts chapter nine. He was content to be faithful and trust God to do what God will do with his chosen instruments, no matter what that looks like. And just a few years later, Barnabas will go on to play a similar role for Saul in Jerusalem. Branded as a traitor by the Jewish leaders, suspected as insincere by the early church, Barnabas advocates for Saul when no one else will. When no one else will. He becomes the bridge between the 12 and the one untimely born. Barnabas recognizes the unity. He perceives the grace God has given to Saul and he knows Jesus has one church. And so in that, he facilitates these relationships, this connection that continues the explosive spread of the gospel. Are you content to rise to obscurity? Are you this morning content to rise to a life of forgettable faithfulness? Will you pour your life out in service of others? Will you share the good news of Jesus with others and then rejoice if and when they become more gifted, more known, or more appreciated than you? When the risen one says rise, regardless of the recognition that comes with, regardless of the visibility of your labors, you become just as much his chosen instrument. So let us be people who rejoice in a life of forgettable faithfulness. Saul himself then actually fades into obscurity for a few years. We'll meet him again at the end of chapter 11. In the meantime, Jesus is still at work in his church. And now indirectly through the apostle Peter, Jesus will tell two more people to rise. And we'll look just briefly at each of those two accounts. So third, with Aeneas, the call is rise to restoration. Rise to restoration. Saul's conversion ushers in a season, temporary as it may be, of peace for the early church. We read about that in verse 31. Walking in both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church continued to multiply. Peter and the other apostles, if you remember last week from Acts chapter 8, 
They had remained in Jerusalem during the intensity of Saul's persecution. But now that there's a season of peace, Peter is traveling around the region. He's become an itinerant minister. And so in a city called Lydda, he meets Aeneas, a paralyzed man who's been bedridden for eight years. And with a power not his own, he says, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. The account, of course, reminds us of Jesus' own healing of a paralyzed man. The apostles have been sent to do the very same works Jesus did during his life and ministry, greater works even. And so as they proclaim Jesus, the apostles often heal people, which are visible signs that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of restoration. Both spiritually and physically, Satan and sin steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen to restore. To restore. Think about this. To Aeneas, his bed is a permanent symbol, a tangible, everyday reminder of sin's power to destroy and to corrupt. So when Peter, in Jesus' name, says, rise, make your bed, put, put it away. You don't need your bed today. That is a personal and powerful glimpse that Jesus is making all things new. That Jesus is right now in the middle of history, reconciling the world to himself. Now, why some of us will experience healing like this and others won't, we cannot know. What we can know is that because Jesus is alive and because he will eradicate not only the effects of sin, but sin itself, some of us plagued and wearied as we are by sin and its effects, by all means, all kinds of troubles and infirmities, will rise to restoration, will experience forms of restoration in this life. And then one day, all the pervasive effects of sin all of the things that are at present not the way they're meant to be will be reversed, will be redeemed, and will be restored. Thanks be to God, this includes death itself. And so forth and finally, when the risen one says rise to Tabitha, he means rise in resurrection. Rise in resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, his resurrection anticipates and secures our own, our own eternal life with him in God's kingdom. Jesus once raised the daughter of a man named Jairus. He once raised a man named Lazarus. After his crucifixion, the earth shook and the tombs were opened and people, the bodies of many saints, were raised up. This is now what Jesus, through Peter, does for Tabitha, a beloved and faithful disciple in Joppa. All of these, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, the saints in Jerusalem, and Tabitha, they rise only to die again. But when Peter kneels down in this moment and he prays and he turns toward her body and he says, Tabitha, arise we again see Jesus' power to overcome death itself. We again see, as Jesus said in John chapter 11, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, whether it's to new life or forgettable faithfulness or to restoration or to our own resurrection, when the risen Jesus says, rise, he is pointing us to himself. He is pointing us to himself. The root word used here in all four of these vignettes with all four of these people who were told to rise in Acts 9, it's the same word used to describe God raising up Jesus from the grave. So this Easter, remember that and rejoice in that. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you by grace, by faith. The same God who raised Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies. Some of you woke up this morning resisting that call from Jesus, kicking against the goads, as it were. Trust Jesus, even today, for your salvation. Rise to new life. Rise to new life. Stop living your life against the grain of the reality of the risen Jesus. Others of you woke up this morning grieving a lack of appreciation, a lack of recognition for all of your labors in the Lord. Rise to forgettable faithfulness. Perceive the worth of being Jesus' chosen instrument, even if you are an obscure instrument. And however much we experience of it today, Jesus' gospel is a gospel of restoration and resurrection. And so because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is the risen one, may you hear him say, rise. One day you will. One day you will. Amen. We pray for us. It is with great joy this morning that we praise you, our gracious God, for you created heaven and earth. You made us in your image and you have kept covenant with us even when we fell into sin. We give thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by his glorious resurrection overcame the power of sin and death and gave us new life. Therefore, we join our voices with all the saints and the angels and the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. And we ask now in these moments that as those two disciples on the road with you to Emmaus on the day you rose, as their hearts burned within them, as they heard of your kingdom and they heard of your finished work, may our hearts burn within us. And as you made yourself known to them in the breaking of the bread, may you now be known to us in the breaking of this bread at your table. Pray this all in your triumphant and glorious and victorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.